1: One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. I grew up in the most progressive city in America, Seattle, Washington. My family is pretty progressive. My parents changed into political progressives over the course of my childhood. And by the time I was an adult, there was a 0% chance they would vote for a Republican politician. And what this makes me is kind of the black sheep politically in the family. I didn't give that much thought, but I was confronted by it in a funny way in my late 20s. I had been studying economics and had become kind of interested in actually sort of a convert to free enterprise, the cause of capitalism. And the reason had nothing to do with trying to get lower tax rates for rich people or for that matter, any of the, the the conventional reasons to look at it. It was because I had become persuaded that free enterprise is the best way to lift up the poor, to pull billions of people out of poverty. But for whatever reason, it was clear that I was getting more and more interested in capitalism, free enterprise, the kind of stuff that conservatives tend to be interested in, not, not progressives. So I was about 28 or 29, and, and I was home at my parents' house. It was Christmas time, and I was in the kitchen with my mom, we were making dinner and we were alone. And now ordinarily my mom was never quiet. She was talking all the time, but this particular evening she was really quiet, too quiet. And, and I finally, I said, mom, is there something on your mind? And she said, you know, your dad and I are very worried about you. And I said, what is it? She said, have you been voting for Republicans? At first, I didn't have the heart to tell her that I was seeing both sides of the political issues for the first time. I'd kind of given myself permission to experiment with traditionally conservative ideas, and and that put me at odds politically with a lot of people I knew growing up, a lot of people I was really close to growing up. And it put me in the in the funny position of being one of those people who doesn't fit in his or her home community. That's what this episode is about. How can we disagree politically with people that we love, people in our families, people who are friends of ours, and still have these relationships? Welcome to the Arthur Brooks Show. I'm Arthur Brooks. I'm the president of the American Enterprise Institute. And this is a show I'm making with the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you're listening to this show, it probably means you wanna know more about how we can disagree with other people, especially people that are close to us, our family and our friends. That's the topic of this episode. By the time you're done listening to this show, you're gonna have a much better idea how to disagree constructively with people around you, even if you love those people, but if they have ideas that you just can't abide.
2: Politics, religion, I mean, these are sort of things that people hold very true to their heart. They consider it part of maybe what, you know, what makes them or, or what defines them. And so when you've got something that important to somebody, then, then yeah, it can it drive a wedge.
1: That's Vale Wright from the American Psychological Association. It's always been hard to talk about politics and religion, but these days in America, it's tougher still.
2: Ever since the presidential election, this has been a topic that people have been really interested in because we are seeing a lot of divisiveness right now in our country, and that extends to families and friends as well.
1: The American Psychological Association does a yearly Stress in America survey. I asked Vail Wright to come on the podcast to talk about what they found and how this level of polarization is affecting us as a country.
2: One of the things that we noticed in the last couple years was patients were reporting to our psychologists that they were feeling stressed about the election, about the state of the nation. And so that's when we really started delving into it and thinking about it. And of course, it came from a little bit of our own experiences, right? Uh, We were also feeling stressed that lots of people were having conversations with their family and their friends about what was going on. And so we wanted to really get deep down and to figure out what was happening. What we find are there are individual stressors that typically drive people, your job, your family, the economy. But then there are these nationwide stressors that people are really reporting having a hard time managing and dealing with.
1: So as a psychologist, let me dig into this list a little bit more. When I talk to people who are really stressed out about politics, they're never really stressed out about how it's going to affect them personally. This is the weird thing. I mean, I, I realize that it affects the economy. That might affect your job downstream or the, the tax bill or, or whether Obamacare exists or doesn't exist. But the people that I talk to who are most wrapped around the axle about President Trump or the Democrats or politics in general... They're, they're aesthetically really freaked out. I mean, they, they it's almost as if the style of politics offends them personally, notwithstanding how it affects them in terms of policy. So it, is, it seems to me that that's more what's going on psychologically here, right?
2: Yeah, I think there's a couple different things. So one of the really interesting findings we had in one of our most recent surveys was that a majority of individuals said that right now is the worst time that they can remember in their lifetime. And that spanned across generations. What do you, so, what do you
1: mean? The, 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 the worst time in their lifetime in what sense?
2: What they reported was, of Americans said that this is the lowest point in our nation's history that they can remember. Mm. And that spanned across generations. So individuals who lived through World War II, individuals who lived through Vietnam, 9-11, everyone is saying that this is the worst, the lowest point in in our nation's history. And I went and I asked my mom. My my mom is 82, 83. Mm -hmm. She lived through the Great Depression. She lived through World War II. And I said to her, you know, could this possibly be true? Isn't it just young people who don't have perspective and they think that's why this is the lowest point? And she said, no, it really came down to the discourse, that there was something dramatically different about the way we are talking now and the way that social media and the 24-hour news cycles are perpetuating this kind of you-can't-get-away-from-it level of divisiveness.
1: So if that's what it looks like on a macro level, what does polarization look like inside families? You have to know something about my in-laws. That's John A. Williams. He used to be my master's degree student many years ago when I taught at Syracuse University. He wrote me a letter recently telling me about his in-laws.
3: I grew up in Arizona and I kind of lean more conservatively. I don't, I'm not saying, you know, I'm lockstep or anything like that. My in-laws, and I love them, they're awesome. They lean more left, kind of center left. There were occasional political conversations in in our families over the years. I didn't say much um, or haven't said much at uh, family gatherings just because, you know, sometimes it has a tendency to, I want to say, stir the pot a little bit. And so there's kind of this quiet calculus of, well, I just, I think I won't say anything. You know, sometimes we get in a political conversation and all of a sudden the, the emotions start and I'm right, and by golly, I'm going to be right no matter what, and we stop thinking about the other person as a person. And we're just trying to trying to score points rather than build relationships.
1: I'm sure many of us can identify with that. Like John, we're doing quiet calculus and thinking, well, I'm just not going to say anything. I won't respond. But at the same time, we don't want to brush these things under the rug. So let's say you do respond, and then things get completely out of control, everybody gets all worked up, and there goes your family dinner. At the end of everything, nobody's changed their mind about anything. Why does that happen? Turns out there's a great reason for that. I talked to Greg Trevers, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Educational Studies at the University of South Carolina, He's spent a lot of time studying exactly how people change their minds. Hey, Greg, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Tell me a little bit about your field of expertise and what brought you there.
4: Yeah, so generally I'm interested to see how people change their minds about controversial topics, particularly controversial topics in science. So I've looked at climate change, evolution, uh, genetically modified foods, and most recently, vaccines. I'm interested to see what people's beliefs are about these topics, their cognitive processes as they process uh, corrective information, and what emotions they are feeling as they process those corrections to see whether or not we can develop something that um, is successful. And if it's not, find out why. Because it's just one of these intractable problems that I think deserves a lot of attention. Do most people change their
1: mind when they're presented with really convincing information or, or at least really credible information on contentious topics? Or do most people find some reason not to believe the new information?
4: Fortunately, most people will change their mind in terms of updating uh, their thinking in, with new information. So if you give them someone a fact, um, they'll take up that fact and they'll, you know, believe it. But on contentious issues, sometimes what we see is this almost like of a whack-a-mole thing that happens where you may correct a specific fact, but then they may express um, a more negative attitude about something else related. Um, they may still persist in their beliefs about um, um, the uh maybe a political candidate or another issue, um, those beliefs may still persist, whereas we update the fact, but we're not updating the overall attitude or the overall intention around that issue. So one study that I've read recently was about uh, vaccines, where people who were um, less inclined to vaccinate their children because they had maybe fears about the vaccine itself, uh, when presented with corrective information that debunked the false link between autism and vaccines, uh, they correctly believed that new information, but they still were less inclined to vaccinate their children in the future. So they showed that was an issue where factual knowledge base improved, but the um, kind of emotional feelings around the issue still persisted.
1: That's interesting. So so you can imagine a case in which somebody might be presented with credible evidence that Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton is is corrupt or incompetent, but they might still not be less likely to vote for that person, even though they say, yeah, I accept that information. Is that what you're saying?
4: Yeah. So the factual information doesn't really touch the overall attitude.
1: Okay. And this actually gets me to something that you've written. In 2016, you published a, a really great paper called Identity and Epistemic Emotions During Knowledge Revision, A Potential Account for the Backfire Effect. What's the backfire effect?
4: So the backfire effect, as it's originally defined, is when we try to correct a misconception about some fact, and that correction um, doesn't work. And not only doesn't work, people who hear that correction actually double down in their misbeliefs about that fact. So it's um, kind of an ironic outcome for people who try to change uh, misconceptions. It's not what you'd hope to see.
1: So as I understand it,
4: the backfire
1: effect is when you are arguing for whatever reason, whether it's who you are or what your position is, when you're trying to persuade somebody else, it actually has the paradoxical impact of making the person you're arguing with double down on his or her position, right? Exactly right, yes. So when, when does
4: it happen? It happens, um, I think, when you activate uh, concepts that are you wouldn't think you would are uh, you're activating. They're kind of tangential to your overall claim, the overall correction, but they're conceptions about the person's identity. So, if I identify myself as a healthy eater, and you're telling me that uh, GMOs are actually very healthy, and I don't believe that, my correction to that will actually backfire in the sense that I may not believe that GMOs are healthy, and may become more negative about that um, after the fact. I would really say it's a interaction between. Uh, people's sense of who they are and what they believe to be true, and uh, the correction. Corrections, for the most part, overall, um, work. They uh, People change their minds along uh, the lines you'd expect. It's just for some people, for a subsample of people, sometimes they are ineffective. And for a smaller subsample, uh, depending on the topic and depending on their personal uh, uh, people's beliefs about who they are, that actually backfires.
1: So give me another example of what to not do when arguing with somebody else I'm trying to persuade.
4: By correcting someone, sometimes we threaten their sense of self. If uh, we say something like, um, no, you're actually wrong in that, and here's why, Um, that might cause someone to feel threatened. That might make them feel angry or anxious or humiliated, and it's those negative emotions that you want to avoid. Those are um, related to your beliefs and values, and so they're kind of moral emotions. What the emotions you really want to bring about are epistemic emotions. You want to make people to feel surprised and curious. Um, It's okay to feel confused sometimes, too, if confusion is done in moderation, but uh, you want to, when you try to correct some people's beliefs, avoid those negative activating emotions. When someone is receiving a correction, um, generally people want to feel like they're morally adequate, they're they're good, competent people, and that forms a, a big foundation of how people identify themselves.
1: Hmm. When you go home for Thanksgiving and, and things start to get contentious a little bit, what do you do as a guy who's trained in this?
4: I would say sometimes if I want to pursue something or if I'm, I'm uh, I want to like you know explore something a little bit further. You want to express uh, sincere curiosity. You know, just ask someone. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And do so not in a way that puts them in a threatened position. You kind of show that you are interested in what they have to say and why they are they saying it. But there's usually um, a story behind it, and so you kind of want to probe that a little bit more. And so you get to hear what they have to say, and then they feel heard as well. They get to express their thinking a little bit more, and then you can have, if you want to pursue that, I think the, probably the best way of doing so without activating um, some threat appraisals that people might make, is finding ways to reframe the discussion, finding those shared values, and uh, saying to this other person, listen, I know we both believe this. I know this is important to both of us. So how can we you know, find the best information that supports this value that we share?
1: Um, are, are you suggesting that nobody can ever be insulted into agreement?
4: I, I don't know of any cases where it worked, um, but I know for sure that it just makes your job harder, I think.
5: We actually met. I do all of the remembering because Caitlin actually doesn't remember very much. That's so I, have a tr- <laughs> I remind I have a her. Memory. I remind her of things frequently.
1: Caitlin Quattromani and Lauren Arledge both live in Centennial, Colorado. That's a suburb about 10 minutes outside of Denver. They're both really good friends, and they've been good friends since they met in 2011. Here's Lauren telling that story.
5: We met at a park. Um, we moved into the neighborhood about the same time. And we were both out one evening walking our kids and we ran into each other and the kids started playing and we started talking and our husbands were with us. And I just remember that night we just laughed and laughed and laughed and we had so much
6: in common. So it was just one of those exciting times. What did we have in common? I mean, the obvious things, right? I mean, we were both moms. We both have two boys that are roughly the same age. I think we both really had similar senses of humor and the fact that we were able to get together and have that connection where we could really laugh easily with each other and tell jokes and kind of tease each other, both working full-time too. I think that was definitely something that we had in common around just the struggles that obviously a lot of working parents deal with, but trying to juggle work and family and relationships and all those different things. So I felt like right out of the gate, we had a lot of things that were kind of instant, instant connections. Yes, for sure.
1: Instant connections can be a pretty exciting thing when you found a new friend. So it was all going great, until the big reveal. Here's Caitlin.
6: I think some of the reveal of our difference in politics um, came because it was an election period, or we were really close to an election period. And so I think probably I had probably a big old John McCain sticker on my car or something. And obviously, Lauren and her husband did not have a John McCain sticker on their car. So I think that was kind of the initial piece was just kind of some some of those signs around, hey, we may diverge a little bit politically. I don't know, Lauren, you're the rememberer. So yep. so what happened? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I just ignore everything just, I just no, said. I no, mean, that's
5: not wrong. It's just not very specific. <laughs> So we were, um, Sean and I had moved back. We grew up in Colorado, but we had moved um, back from North Carolina, a small town in North Carolina. And where we came from was um, a very politically divided area. And, you know, we were, as we were making new friends, we were laughing about, you know, are we going to find our people in the suburbs? Like this was a huge transition for us. And so we had found this great couple and we were thinking, all right, do you, what do you think? Do you think they're Republicans or Democrats? And we were like, well, we sure hope they're not Republicans. And we, talk, we were talking about it. And so finally, one day, we were walking. And I remember so vividly, because we were right in front of our house, walking down to the park. And I was like, all right, let's have it. Where? What are you? And I think I must have had an inkling, because I remember feeling a little bit of dread and, um, and she, she said, well, you know, I do have a, what's your Reagan, you have like a Ronald
6: Reagan shirt from oh, the, yeah, I, I don't remember what the slogan yeah, is, but it's slogan. a Reagan campaign yeah. shirt."
5: and, and she kind of made a joke about it. And then, you know, at that point though, I mean, it was like, we were having so much fun. And so then it really just, I think there was like a strategy that kind of came in place of like how we're going to keep a relationship like this if we have such bl- different political beliefs.
1: And those differences in their political beliefs, they were substantial. Take just one example of how this played out. School shootings. Both Caitlin and Lauren have kids in elementary school, and both feel strongly about what should be done to keep them safe. But they just don't feel the same. Here's Caitlin.
6: But yeah, I I mean, I'm still very passionate, and I know we've talked about this issue, around increasing the amount of armed security in schools at all levels and i know many of these school shootings have happened at the high school level um, here in our district and i think yours as well you know we've already got some armed security at the high school level and the middle school level but it's elementary schools where i really where i really get nervous and and i feel like that's where i think we could be doing more around armed security at elementary schools at least in in my own district I appreciate that there are funding issues and all sorts of hurdles that need to be overcome there, but I feel really, really strongly about armed security um, for all schools, both as a kind of first line of defense, so to speak, if God forbid anything were to ever happen, of course, but also just as a deterrent um, factor to try and, you know, to try and prevent these things from happening. And I realize that that's not the only piece. I realize that there is mental health elements, and I realize that there are elements about how do you. How do you keep guns out of the hands of these students who are perhaps more at risk to do this type of horrible thing? Um, So I realize armed security isn't the only part of the solution, but from my perspective, that still feels like an important part of the solution.
1: And when she talks about arming people in school to protect kids, Caitlin's also talking about the idea of allowing teachers to volunteer to carry a gun at school. Lauren feels very differently about how to keep their kids safe from a shooter.
5: I still feel about it the same way I did before, and I think fundamentally it's just my belief and you know the research that I've seen in terms of what happens when there's guns in places, right? And that the chances of accidents and things like that happening. And I guess for me, that's still the risk benefit sort of equation. Is I, do- I don't think that that's gonna like that would have solved this problem.
1: And it's not just school shootings. Lauren joined the Women's March last year. Caitlin didn't. Caitlin voted for Donald Trump. And needless to say, Lauren didn't. In fact, it was shortly after that election that they decided to do a TEDx talk called How Our Friendship Survives Our Opposing Politics.
6: I listen to conservative talk radio just about every day, and I volunteered for a few different conservative political campaigns. And I'd say I'm a little to the left,
5: like all the way to the left. (laughs) I've always been interested in politics. I was a political science major, and I worked as a community organizer and on a congressional campaign.
6: People felt very strongly about Trump. People felt very strongly about Hillary. We were reading a lot of stories in the news, right, about relationships that were being fractured. And and on the extreme side of it, I remember there was a story about a woman who had been married for 20 years or something, and she and her husband, one voted for Hillary, one voted for Trump, and they decided to divorce or something. I mean, it was just a crazy kind of this divisive atmosphere that was happening. I think you and I were both reading some of those stories thinking, man, like this is this is crazy that people are actually leaving relationships and, and that the election and the passion behind the politics is causing relationships to become fractured. That should not be happening, right? I mean, how, how do we figure out how to not let a, a political election or political issues, you know, cause relationships to fall apart?
1: So how did they figure out how to keep their politics from ruining their friendship? Here's Lauren again
5: we've kept our relationship strong and stable and you know positive i think through a level of commitment talking about it honestly and understanding that we both feel strongly about the you know our perspective and the way that we see the world um and so the the level of commitment and just staying in it i think you know we we talk about things all the time that are hard to talk about
6: i would also add for me ultimately, I love and respect Lauren very much. And I think she's smart. I value her opinions. I value her perspective and and kind of how she came to those perspectives through her experiences throughout her life. And so when we're talking about an issue that may be controversial or contentious, or maybe get a little bit difficult to talk through, that to me is what keeps me centered is I may disagree with Lauren on the policy issue or whatever it is that we're discussing but that doesn't negate or minimize my love for her as my friend and so disagreement to me does not equate to you know just because we disagree about a policy issue means that gosh you're you're a terrible person and I can't have a relationship with you those those things are very separate in my mind and I think my friendship with Lauren is way too important to me to let any sort of political disagreement get in the way of that
5: and then there's also this idea of Appreciation for the fact that I have someone in my life that I, you know, they that could very easily just be like an other, but they're a person to me. And so that is a good test and a good way to keep us all focused on, you know, I think we would be much better off if we all looked at each other as full people instead of just like issues or politics or the pieces that are really easy to write people off. Because I, I really believe that if you sit and talk to people long enough, People come to their beliefs for a specific reason. And once you have that information, the chance to find the place of dialogue and connection becomes possible. And without it, you know, we just stay
6: divided. So when Lauren and I are speaking about an issue where we may disagree, whatever that might be, you know, policy issue, what have you, we really, I think both of us come to that conversation with the commitment that it is a dialogue, that we are going to be willing to hear each other's points of view. We are not just gonna shout, shout the other person down and, and uh, be inflexible on our ability to listen and learn. That to me is what makes our relationship successful in a lot of ways when we're trying to navigate what could otherwise be kind of a difficult conversation.
1: We're going to wrap up the show now by going back to Vale Wright from the American Psychological Association.
2: You know, at the end of the day, when you're balancing these different things, whether it's your objective, your relationship, or your values, you have to prioritize which one in each situation rises to the top. And if for you relationships rise to the top over everything else, then ideally, yeah, that you would put politics aside or put it on the back burner or agree to disagree in order to maintain that relationship. What I think is challenging right now is is the sense of wanting to avoid. Avoid talking about things because they're hard, But when we avoid, we're doing a couple different things. We're signaling to ourselves that this is too challenging to talk about. It's too scary. I can't handle it. But we're also maintaining the status quo, this sort of social divisiveness that somehow these are divides that we can't cross. And I think for the most part, people have more in common than they have not in common. And I think that for a lot of people, it's not about the politics, but it should be about policies.
1: Oh, that's Well, I mean, this is a really important piece of advice that I often give to politicians here in D.C. is that they should talk to each other about their shared why, not about their divided what. Yeah. And and you're saying that families should do that too? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Focus on the things that you, we all should care about, like the welfare of the kids, yep. like uh, the things that we have in common, like what's going to happen to mom and dad as they're getting older mm-hmm. as opposed to um, whatever – President Trump said on Twitter.
2: Right. Yeah, I I think when we can get away from politicians and the politics, Mm. we can be a lot more successful. Because, again, it's like talking about a sports team. People are in their own camps, and they're not going to get out of their camp. Right. And so if your objective is no longer to try to change somebody's mind, it really opens up all these different opportunities for you to connect on a different level. I think one of the things that is driving a lot of this anxiety and the social divisiveness that the underlying factors really fear Fear of uncertainty, fear of the unknown, fear of what's going to happen. And we can all empathize with feeling fear. Even if what is causing somebody else fear or uncertainty doesn't make sense to us, then that, again, that opens up new doors for how you communicate.
1: A statistic that I ran across, I think it's interesting, and I'd like you to, to open it up for me a little bit, is that 25% of Americans say that the political climate is a source of tension in their families. Is that consistent with your findings? Yes. That's a big problem, right? Yeah, it's one of four. The the general rule is to what for these people that are having this problem. So in other words, a lot of people listening to us are dreading going to Thanksgiving dinner in a few months. And the reason is because they've got an uncle, they've got a they've got a, a sister-in-law, they have somebody who's really super wrapped up in politics, and who's going to be making some statements that they know they're going to disagree with. Give me give me a strategy.
2: Yeah, there are no hard and fast rules about this, to be honest.
1: Yeah, so you're a psychologist. I need hard and fast rules.
2: It, 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 I'm going to give you the psychology answer. It depends. <laughs> I mean, some families may decide that the holidays just isn't a time to talk about this, and so they might set some rules right right off the bat. You know that while we're at the dinner table we're going to stay away from politics if you want to have these conversations you can have them before or after. For others, this is the only time you might see each other and so you want to have a discourse about it. But we want to approach these conversations skillfully and using all of the good communication skills that we have at our disposal.
1: Okay, so let's say let's put ourselves in the situation here and and somebody says something with which I really really disagree and I find it kind of uh, outrageous. What I heard, but I love the person. Tell me the best reaction that I could po- the most constructive reaction that I could possibly have under those circumstances
2: so again, one of the things you want to think about is is what's your objective. If your goal is again to try to change their mind or change the way they think about it, you're probably not going to be very successful. But if your goal is to just learn more about why they think that way, then that opens up an opportunity for you to Again, use really skillful things about asking them more to tell you more about what's going on and using literally things like I statements like, I hear what you said. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with you. Can you tell me a little bit more about what's making you think that way? It, it's a lot about openness. That's a really key word. Instead of getting immediately defensive is to be open and empathic and to want to hear what they have to say because at the end of the day, this is something that, somebody that you care about. I mean, if this is a relationship that you value then you have to prioritize it. And that might mean prioritizing it over you being right. You also really want to think about staying true to your values. It's about reminding yourself, how do you want to feel at the end of this conversation? Do I want to stay true to my values? And if my values are being uh, loving and being understanding, then I'm not going to name call.
1: So, so let me see if I can summarize, and I, and I want to see if you agree. These are veil vale rights rules for a happy and healthy Thanksgiving with family members who disagree with you politically. Rule number one, be kind. And what that means is be open to different points of view. And it's more important to be kind than it is to be right all the time. Rule number two, be true to your values. It's related to rule number one. Be true to your values means not being a rigid SOB who leaves the the Thanksgiving table saying, man, I sure am sorry I turned over the table and threw the turkey at Uncle Jim. Rule number three, you're in charge. Choose your reaction. Don't give your power away by becoming a reactive person. Somebody says something objectionable, you choose your reaction to that, and in so doing, you can have a big impact, not just on the other person, you may or may not, you can have a big impact on your own heart. Vale, how do you feel about the three roles that I use to characterize your views.
2: I think you made me sound very smart and I appreciate that.
1: <laughs> I think that I made you sound exactly how you are and I'm honored to have you on the podcast. It's great to be with you.
2: Thanks. It was great to be here.
1: Our team at AEI is CeCe Gallagly and Nathan Thompson. At Vox Media, our producer is Gautam Shrikashen, who also composed our theme music. Golda Arthur is senior producer. And Nisha Kurwa is executive producer of audio. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Tell someone you know about this podcast and leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear your stories of how you deal with disagreement within your family and with those closest to you. Email us at arthurbrookshow at voxmedia.com. Or you can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Arthur Brooks. Thanks for listening.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip?